0: Welcome to the CSC podcast. I'm Phil Haas, the director of marketing and communications for Classic Stage Company. A little over a year ago, we decided to launch a podcast at CSC that would help supplement our productions. We planned for it to be a platform to find out more about the plays we were producing and the artists associated with our work. And we did just that for two whole episodes. Then, as we were gearing up for our third interview, the pandemic hit. Our theater and offices closed, rehearsals were suspended for our upcoming production of Assassins, and frankly, Off-Broadway hasn't been the same since. Our city and our theater community are hurting right now. As the coronavirus pandemic upended everything we knew, renewed calls for racial justice and equality around the country also prompted an awakening within the American theater. Now, a podcast can't push that particular needle forward too much. Especially when our theater is closed, and especially when the theater company producing the podcast has a history of staging work mainly by dead white European men. But could a podcast help? Maybe. That's why we decided to reinvent the CSC podcast. Every month you'll hear me speak with theater professionals about the classics. And yes, I just used air quotes. What is a classic anyway? And why are some older plays considered classics and others just forgotten? We're going to speak with people who have years of experience questioning that very definition of classic theater and challenging the way we produce theater in America. We may not get definitive answers to all we're asking, but we have to start somewhere. So here we go. Our guest today is actor, producer, teacher, and director, Peter Kipp. Peter has been seen in numerous TV shows, movies, and Broadway and off-Broadway productions, including Wild Goose Dreams at the Public Theater, Maple and Vine at Playwrights Horizons, and Charles Francis Chan Jr.'s exotic Oriental Murder Mystery with NatCo, the National Asian American Theater Company. Peter is also the associate producer for NatCo, teaches acting at Princeton University, and is a steering committee member of the Obi-Winning grassroots organization, APAC, the Asian American Performers Action Coalition. He's currently a member of the rising leaders of color program from theater communications group. And on October 9th, you can catch Peter in Rada Blank's Sundance hit film, the 40 year old version when it premieres on Netflix. Thanks for joining me today, Peter. Of course. Um, I would love to start our conversation uh, by hearing more about NATCO. Um, That's the National Asian American Theatre Company. Can you
1: speak about their mission and your work with with the company? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So NATCO, the National Asian American Theatre Company, was founded in 1989. Its first production was actually in 1990, exactly 30 years ago which is pretty cool. Um, The founding mission of the company was to produce European and American classics as written with all Asian American casts. And I think like to listeners today that might not seem that kind of radical or it seems like, oh, well, that's what everyone's doing or actually not, but um, it was pretty radical. 30 years ago. Um, and what I love about the company and that kind of founding mission of the company was that it fo- forces audiences to see people who look like me and consider them American. Right. And I think that is even more important today, almost in today's political climate especially with the way COVID-19 is being um, pitched to certain people um, as the China virus, you know, it's, um, it actively forces an audience to reconsider what America and American means and looks like. Um, and, and, you know, like setting these plays that are European, um, typically European, uh, in, set in Europe, you know um, like Strindberg or Chekhov um, these are and setting them as is is um, you know like we're not going to recontextualize the play to set it in an Asian setting um, that has its own validity but that's not what the purpose or mission of NACCO is. What are some of the plays that uh,
0: the company's worked on where they've they've done this?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the first production was three one-act plays by Chekhov. Um, And I think a more recent version of that mission was two things, actually. One was Awake and Sing. That was a big critical hit for the company, and we ended up remounting it at the public and, you know, getting... Lovely recognition for it. And that's a Clifford Odette's play about a Jewish American family, um, you know, set in the 1930s. And we did it as written with all of the appropriate dialects um, and costumes and set, but it was with an all Asian American cast. And then another example of it was our epic six hour theatrical extravaganza of Henry VI. Um, all three parts, um, and that had a cast of, uh, if it's if I remember correctly, 18 actors of Asian descent playing upwards of 100 roles. Um, and, you know, I remember like Stephen Brown Freed who directed it, the opening moment of that whole extravaganza was all of the actors coming out on stage and just seeing that many actors of Asian descent doing Shakespeare was incredibly powerful and moving. And it was intentional on Stephen's part to kind of make this statement right off the bat. Um, and that was really, really powerful um, and really exciting and thrilling. And I think it really speaks to what NACO is about. That's great. Um, I have a question about
0: Awake and Sing. And mm-hmm. we can go back to that for a second. You know, something that CSC has faced in more recent years is um, every now and then we'll get pushback from audience members or from uh, just people in the community that are unhappy with the fact that we've cast something, not the way they've always seen it for a hundred years or 200 years. Um, and was there any of that with Awake and Sing?
1: Did you experience any of that with
0: audiences or were they, no. were they really embracing
1: it? It's interesting. Um, we did Awakening originally at Walker Space in twenty thirteen, I believe twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, and some critics were kind of not down with it, which is a not that surprising, and b really freaking sad um, that there was a little bit of pushback. But you know, Bartlett shares production of Awakening at Lincoln Center had white actors in it that were not Jewish. Right. So what's the difference? You
0: That's know a what really I mean?
1: good point to make. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was some pushback, not surprising, um, but um, not really from our audience. That's really great. That's, I mean, I think that shows that people are
0: interested in seeing things from more than just the same point of view that they've always seen these plays produced yeah. over time, which is which is good to see.
1: One of the thrilling things about doing the remount at The Public was that um, there were a lot of people who had never seen Awakening ever before. So their first exposure to this classic, if you will, uh, this masterpiece, Um, was with an all Asian-American cast, which I think is hilarious. Like, I just love that, you know? Yeah. First exposure to Odette and Awakening is, (laughs) oh, this is about an Asian-American story. Okay, cool. You know, but not realizing it's it's from a totally different um, generation. I
0: would love to know more about, you know, the significance of that production of Henry VI. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me a little bit about um, your personal experiences with Shakespeare and why why a production like that is so important and so moving and and why why why
1: that really must be done today you know I have a I have my own baggage when it comes to Shakespeare um I really appreciate the language. I appreciate the stories. But me personally, being a child of Korean immigrants, I grew up in a household that spoke a mixture of Korean and English. Um, and I joke with my husband that I'm ESL, you know, uh, English second language. And he's like, No, you're not. You're not." I'm like, I know, but I kind of am because I didn't grow up in a in a fully English speaking household. And um, because of like, I don't know maybe the way I put Shakespeare on a on a you know um on a podium or a pedestal that it felt like something I had to reach towards and that it wasn't meant for me and that it wasn't uh that and it was like a weird kind of like I don't know like I'm not smart enough I'm not um I don't have the language skills you know um and so it's taken me a really long time to get over that. And I still kind of have baggage about it. Um, Interestingly, I don't really feel that way about like Moliere or Shaw or Chekhov, you know, it's really specifically Shakespeare. Um, So it's kind of interesting as a, you know, multi-hyphenate as an actor, producer, teacher, director. Um, Henry VI was really exciting for me as a producer, I I knew I didn't want to be in it. Um, And just because I don't necessarily, I feel like, you know, Mia Katzigbach, she is the artistic um, founding director, um, the founding artistic director of the company. And she can do that like a pro. She can act in something, produce in it, like at the same time. I cannot, I I have a really hard time with that. So... um, I really wanted just to produce it. And what's so gratifying about that is to be able to provide uh, a space for Asian American theater makers to perform Shakespeare. Um, so there's that, that portion of it. Yeah. The other portion of it is, is literally the themes of that play. Yes. That play is about what happens when there's a vacuum at the top. I mean, you couldn't get more uh, relevant. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, it's timely. <laughs> yeah, like what happens when there's a vacuum at the top? Then everyone around him or her starts gr- trying to grab, yeah, the power, and it really doesn't serve the people. Um, so thematically, that that production was 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 thrilling. Um, it was also, I think just in terms of growing as a as a producer, um, that was by far the most ambitious project that NAco had ever undertaken, and by far for me as a, a producer of off- Broadway theater, um that was that was the hardest, most ambitious project I'd ever been a part of.
0: How do you think productions like that help push that um... mission? Yeah, that mission, but also, how, like, how do they help people, you know, redefine the classics and really, you know, embrace them in a way that, that they haven't been able to before because that's not how they've seen them.
1: Yeah. told. You know, I've, I've been really thinking about what a classic is and how to define a classic and what that means to me. And um, funny enough, I had, like, the analogy to fashion, so like a classic little black dress for instance sure you know and like classic designers that we think are classics like Ralph Lauren yeah Carolina Herrera Michael Kors you know what is it about that and i and i think it's like first of all there's like a high level of quality um it can withstand trends it's easily it's iconic but adaptable um and I I was thinking about that, you know, in terms of theater and what makes a classic. And I think it's similar. Uh, A classic is something that withstands trends um, that is enduring, everlasting. You know, you can go back to that great turtleneck over and over and over again, as long as it's of good quality and well-made and well-structured. For me, I think a classic also thematically is about... Um really the hero's journey and providing catharsis for the audience. Um I think yeah, like I I'm sort of I'm really I, I really am into structure, beginning, middle, and end, the journey, the arc. Um obviously how do you read how do you do that without um in a new fresh way, you know? Um so I think casting a classic with an all asian cast is a way of making something perhaps that doesn't feel relevant relevant again and i think sometimes people use classic and classical interchangeably yeah yes and and i think that's a that's a i think the word is a misnomer i think yeah so um Yeah. So, you know, we're just, and I, I, and I love adaptations of the classics. I I, I do. And that's another mission of NACO where um, Asian American playwrights uh, adapt a classic. Um, I I mean, I love that. I love that idea because you're essentially taking the DNA of the classic and reinventing it. Um, So I, I think it's really important because there are these beautiful you know typically european classics yes. that need to be made more relevant for what america looks like today and in particular new york um i mean we, we both of our companies are in new york city incredibly diverse um communities and which we are meant to serve so you know i think for people who aren't accustomed to it i'm kind of like that's fine you that's fine it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable with it but just sit with that and why and why does it make you feel uncomfortable
0: well especially because you speak to the fact that thematically right these plays that's why they're they're classics in some ways because over time these same issues that the plays bring up that right. they they're still really current today that's yes. why Henry six or our production of that. That's why mm-hmm. all of that still sits and resonates today. Yeah. So why not also cast it and show it in a way that also represents that because these themes, they affect all of us, especially mm-hmm. everyone. If we're, if we're talking about issues that relate to New York and, and the things that we're all experiencing here, you have to showcase them the, the,
1: the, the breadth of people that live here in the city. Yeah. I mean, I, I really do believe representation matters. Um, you know, being a young Asian American actor in New York, uh, NACO gave me one of my gave me my first job out of undergrad, um, and so I, I think you know there is a real impact when you feel like you're part of a community where you're welcome, where you see yourself reflected. I mean, this is the same thing that people are talking about about representation in film and television too. Why it's so important um, you know being a working actor for like three decades now I'm sort of like my kind of um, I'm fortunate enough to work a lot in commercials and commercials are you know one of the few ways that actors can actually make a, a kind of like make make a pretty good um, salary Yeah. Um, and somebody told me and I think it's very true that commercials are cast most Um, commercials have to be cast to speak to their audience right now because they are selling to the consumer right now because they want them to buy their product right now. And so that's why you'll see probably the most uh, racial diversity or any type of diversity, like um, sexuality-wise, gender-wise, in commercials because they have to appeal to the current market. And then the next probably would be television. And then following that would be film and theater. So I think, I think it's really interesting when you think about it that way. Um, and I think it's really important because theater can feel very exclusive. It can feel very not inclusive. Um, and people can experience microaggressions up the wazoo inside a theater by attending, you know? Um, and so it's really important. Uh, I think it's been proven, I think it was, Doug over Doug Abel at The Vineyard had said on a panel that when there is more racial diversity on stage, it automatically translates to more diversity in the audience. That was his experience yeah. as an artistic director, you know, running The Vineyard. And this is, I think he said this maybe 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, we've certainly experienced that a bit at CSC, that as mm-hmm. we've diversified our casts and, and who people are seeing on stage, our audience has grown. In, in every possible way, whether yeah. it's uh, race, whether it's age, mm-hmm. um, and, and also across class structures too. You know, right. We've seen people, it's not just for the wealthy to, mm-hmm. to come to the theater now. And you know, part of that is also making sure you're offering access points for people to come in and so the tickets aren't always overpriced. But sure. it's also the programming and what you're offering there because it, it speaks to people from you no, know, regardless of where they sit on, on that spectrum.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, definitely. I'm, I come from a family that is really not in the arts at all. The only way, the reason why I even got my foothold in this industry is because I had an incredible mentor named Linda, who was my fifth grade music teacher. And she was directing *A mall and the Night Visitors as the Christmas show. And she was like you should audition i was like what are you talking about i don't know even know what this means so i did and um she was literally my champion slash kind of pseudo manager slash second mother all the way from like grammar school through college until she passed away and um without her and her mentorship and her belief in me and my talent i wouldn't be where i am today um and This is a little bit off topic, but I I feel like um, I am a huge proponent of mentorship, also peer mentorship. Um, And, you know, like Liz Suedos was one of my mentors. Uh, Mia at NACO is one of my current mentors. And now, being um, teaching acting at Princeton, I get to be a mentor to a whole bunch of other students as well. And so it feels really great to give back because I have received so much and, um, I think spaces like Natco provides this home really where other Asian American theater makers feel like they can grow and that they have support and community and also just opportunities that a lot of actors, directors, writers don't typically get. So, it's really, I don't know, I just can't, I can't, I can't talk enough about that. And, um, you know, like the the movie that I'm in, the 40 year old version, uh, Rada Blank's film, again, like I just did this panel yesterday for it with Radha and Oswin Benjamin, uh, my co-lead and the same thing with Radha, you know. She was a teaching artist for many years. She's a proponent of mentorship, and you know, she really gave me the opportunity to be in this film. She wrote this part with me in mind. I got to collaborate on it, develop it, and also, she really values me as a collaborator, not only as an actor, but as like my dramaturgy, my my opinions about plot and structure and yada yada so and she you know she she by keeping me in the cast too in this feature film which not all filmmakers do they have to recast with names in order to get financing and stuff but she kept me throughout this whole process and i feel like that is yet another way of kind of uplifting and supporting your community um and why it's so important. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that film. What, um, what's it about? Um, I think your audiences will appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> it's about a struggling playwright who decides to become a rapper at 40. Wow. So she, her name is Radha and played by Radha Blank. It's very uh, much an autobiographical story. Um, she's a struggling playwright, um, who's about to turn 40. Um, she's black and she lives, you know, she's she's trying to have a career in the theater, in the New York city theater, which let's be quite frank, most of those institutions are predominantly white. They are. And so how do you navigate that? You know? And then, so through her frustration and a very specific event, she decides to become a rapper. And my character, his name is Archie, he's Korean-American, he's gay, he is also her childhood best friend who is also her agent. So, needless to say, slightly <laughs> complicated relationship with very porous boundaries. <laughs> so, um, it's really this kind of, it's the movie is really a love letter to New York and to Radha's two loves, which are the theater and hip hop. And it's about finding your own voice. It's about finding what success means to you. And I think like, especially being an artist in New York in the theater, like, you know, it's hard not to compare to other theater artists where, oh, they want an Obie, or, oh, they're getting a production at CSC, or, oh, they're getting, you know, like these markers that we kind of use within the industry to um, kind of say, oh, you've made it. Um, And I think the movie is really important actually for right now for many, many reasons. It talks about um, a lot of what white American theater, the white American theater movement is talking about. It's addressing, of course, themes of uh, why black lives matter and black joy matter. Um, And then I think it's talking about a lot of what we artists are talking about right now is, how do we define success? Because we don't have those markers of like, wow, I can't use that production at CSC or at the public as my indicator of success. So what do we use to define success? um and it's also just really really funny yeah (laughs) yeah that's the important thing to to remember too it's also it's really funny but also um i love it i love the movie so much uh, because it's also incredibly hopeful Mm. Um, and in another interview i said it's almost like a bomb or salve um that we all need right now
0: yeah, I think everyone's looking for that and what
1: they're watching. We've yeah. never kind of seen that a lot. Yeah,
0: um, It won it won some awards at Sundance, It too. did,
1: yeah. It won um, the Best um, uh, Narrative uh, Director Award, and Rada is the only second Black woman to w- win that award. Wow. The first person was Ava DuVernay, which is crazy pants. Yeah. Um, so incredible. And, um, yeah, so Netflix picked it up. It's going to get released on October 9th. Um, it'll be in select theaters on October 2nd. Um, so. Probably
0: not here in New York, but for anyone yes, listening out, <laughs> elsewhere, where they have movie theaters open. Uh, well, I think yeah. my
1: home state, New Jersey might be open by then. I heard that, I think oh. they're opening at the end of September. Um, and I'm not sure if Connecticut's open yet, but certainly, you know, other states are,
0: but that's what Netflix
1: is for. So that's. Great. Yes, Exactly. Exactly.
0: So I want to go back a little bit and talk about um, a production at Natco uh, that is Charles Francis Chan Jr.'s Exotic Oriental Murder Mystery. Yeah. Great title. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a really important piece for you. Yes, for many reasons. Can you, can you tell us about that and, sure. and what the production is about and, and your
1: experience with it? Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. So it's, the, the play is written by Lloyd Saw who recently just won the Horton foot prize for his play, the Chinese lady and Lloyd is also Korean American. Uh, we're around the same age and I've known him for like probably two decades now. And I, I consider him like my creative brother. Um, you know, that play was actually uh, NACO's first commission. Uh, so NACO commissioned Lloyd to adapt, um, um um murder on the orient express and um so lloyd did and it kind of started out as sort of like a traditional kind of adaptation you know but then lloyd got inspired and really took a turn and so it's an ex it's crazy how do i describe this play it's uh <laughs> it's it's really about oh man Okay, I should have I should have prepared better for this one. <laughs> um, basically, so there's there's the real Frank Chin, who's somewhat a um, radical slash some could say problem problematic figure in the founding of Asian American theater in this country. Um, but it's loosely based on him and his own uh, it's sort of like Lloyd's own personal journey with having this sort of problematic father figure in a way. Because Frank Chin is kind of considered the father of Asian American theater. But he has lots of really problematic ideas and um opinions about things. And so like what? What for example? Like, like um you know he's kind of known for ripping apart Maxine Hong Kingston um for um um uh, Woman Warrior um he like and also ripping apart david henry huang for really? for them essentially being sellouts for them being like you're making theater you're for white people not for your own people wow yeah i mean there might be some validity in that but his tactics are real aggressive yeah um i don't know some people might call it cancel culture what we call cancel culture now um So i think part of it was lloyd's exploration of like how do you deal with that because yeah and he and frank chin wrote plays like some of the first ever asian american plays um and so and frank chin is still alive today you know um so it was sort of and then also about um charlie chan so the you know the fictional character of charlie chan and how problematic that character is and because for your audiences who may not know, Charlie Chan was um, a char- a fictional character of a like a murder mystery character, not unlike Perrault, yep. who is um, who was played by a white man in yellowface for for a very very long time, far too long, far too long, and um, so it's sort of Lloyd's examination of that relationship, you know, Frank Chin's the fictional Frank Chin's relationship with that Charlie Chan, um, who is sort of. He has this love hate relationship with Charlie Chan, obviously, and so um I think Lloyd was really interested in exploring grappling with the history actually and and you know racial representation of um Asian Americans in this country, and yet he was able to talk about these really heavy, crazy themes in a very comical yeah. way because it's,
0: it's like fun zany
1: it's zany it's fun it alternates between it's very meta like it alternates between like the reality and then the play reality and then um it's really fun um and funny and um you know i had the so i originated one of the roles in it in the naco production and also produced it um and then when uh, this is in 2016, I had taken a heart out from the acting industry because of personal reasons and also just hitting a plateau in my career. I was like, "This is terrible. I hate my life. I'm I'm out of it. I'm out of here." So I did, and like literally the next day, I got a call from my director friend Susie Aegans, who teaches at Princeton, and she was like, "Hey, one of our um, uh, one of our uh, rising seniors." proposed Chan, um, Charles Francis Chan Jr.'s Exotic Oriental Murder Mystery as their thesis project. And we and she's like, I think you'd be a great person to direct it. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never directed it in my life. What? So then we, we met for coffee. We talked about it. She convinced me. And then I interviewed for it and I got it. And it actually ended up becoming, it's like the first time on Princeton's campus where it was a predominantly all Asian cast telling this Asian American story and the play, the production was a huge hit um, or whatever hit, you know, it was like, <laughs> it, like it, it really spoke to a, a large part of the Princeton community, which is like 23% Asian or Asian American. And we had sold out performances um, and it really spoke to the community. And because that experience went so well, I was invited to teach acting there and One of the really wonderful things that came out of that production is um, so the student that was proposing it as her as her senior thesis was Kathy Zhao, um, who unfortunately had a really bad experience in a show at Princeton the year before dealing with casting and race. Um, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty, but it was bad, and so she was trying to reclaim her space in the theater community there as an Asian American. And so she ended up founding the first Asian American student theater group on campus, her and um, uh, two other um, Asian American students. So it's really like, and you know, I, I keep on like, uplifting NACO because I, I it really has affected my life in so many ways and so you know like obviously NACO providing this opportunity for lloyd to adapt a classic and which i got to originate a role and produce which then led me to directing it at princeton which then led me to teaching at princeton um and then you know it's like the gift that keeps on giving like my relationship with lloyd i've basically kind of workshopped every play he's ever written, um, including the Chinese lady. Um, but you know, I think it was last summer, I believe. Um he was in the ensemble studio theater marathon. He wrote a piece for it. It was a two-hander, and he was like, hey, um, I really liked what you did with Chan at Princeton. Do you want to direct my piece? And I was like, sure. So um I directed that was my professional debut as a director. Directing one of Lloyd's plays, and I would have only directed had the courage and confidence to direct it because I had directed his work before, and also I'm so familiar with it. I'm so so familiar with it with his um his writing. Um, so yeah, and 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 that play has been done a bit regionally. Um, you know, it, it got uh, some wonderful critical response, and um. I think that because there is a there is the sole white actor in that play that does wear yellow face in it. Um, so it's daring, it's ballsy, but it really, really is impactful. Um, and so I'm excited to see um, future productions of that play.
0: So my last question for you is part of a special feature that we're starting with the podcast. Ooh, cool. So- we are looking, CSC is looking to expand the definition of classic works. And it's something that we've always been doing, but we but we can't do it now on stage because there's no theater. Sure. There. So uh, what we're going to ask our various podcast guests are, what is a work that you feel should be considered a classic, uh, some piece of art or something that's, that should be considered a classic, but hasn't always been considered one, whether it's here in America or just because of, you know, how old it is or for whatever reason. But we would love to, you know, expand that a bit more. So maybe at the end of all these podcasts, we have this like amazing list of uh, pieces that people can look to, to expand their definition of of what a classic is.
1: I love that idea. Um, Well, one obvious one is is, in fact, Charles Francis Chan Jr.'s exotic oriental murder mystery for all of the reasons I've, I've spoken before. Um, and so definitely check out that play. But also, I would say pretty much all of Lloyd's plays. You know, American Huang Up, um, The Chinese Lady. Um, they're so... I, I really am a huge fan of his. Um, so definitely I want to uplift Lloyd. And though it's not a play or a piece of theater, I do think Min Jin Lee's Pachinko is a classic. It's such it's a it's a novel. Um probably many of your listeners have already read it, but if not, um it's this gorgeous multi-generational story about Koreans and Korean Americans um as a korean american i am embarrassed to say i did not know so much about korean history um that i learned through the book especially koreans um you know like in the early 1900s who were trying to pass as japanese Mm. um, which is fascinating and it still has repercussions today because um, a lot of koreans that have been born and raised in Japan. So they are ethnically Korean, but, but culturally um, Japanese, they are still, they are still treated with discrimination in Japan. Um, You know, even if you're born in Japan and you're ethnically Korean, you cannot, you get a different type of passport. Um, So, it's it's a fascinating story but ultimately told through through one family um what's the plot
0: of, of that
1: it really follows like this one family at the beginning of like the 1900s and then how like generation after generation like how you see them progressing and moving forward in in their lives and so you you see different generations um coming about so you get you get to learn not only about what it was possibly like in korea when the korean war was happening but earlier than that and then more to present day um and it's it's so sparsely written but what's incredible about it is like it's so sparsely written but it's it packs such an emotional punch um and i think to go back just to thinking about what a classic is, I yeah. think that is one of the not requirements, but one of the things that I define a classic: that there is a strong uh, vernacular or or strong um, written style, like a you know Shakespeare is very clear, Chekhov, Pinter, Pinter, you know Shaw. Um, so many, um, so that there's a distinct writing style and voice um, that has a universal theme, though told in a very specific circumstance. Um, and Pachinko by is definitely a book that I, I plan on reading again and again and again. Um, and it's actually being adapted, I believe, into an Apple TV series.
0: Yeah, it's been a, a that's been talked about a lot. I think it won a bunch of awards. Yes. Think, the past few years. So. Yes. Um, I think, you know, more and more people are becoming familiar with that work. So that's, that's a great one.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Min Jin Lee is also Korean American, um, has a very um, active um, social media presence. Um, I've had the good fortune of meeting her on occasion. And um, she's also just a lovely human being that also really understands what it means to be um, a BIPOC person, uh, you know, being BIPOC in America. Um, and navigating um, predominantly white spaces as a person of Asian descent.
0: Well, I hope all of our listeners can read that and also uh, check out those other plays that you mentioned as well. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I think this has been a wonderful conversation and I hope hope our audiences have have gotten as much out of it as I have. So
1: it was a delight, Phil, really. It's such a pleasure to spend some time with you. And um, I hope you and everyone that's listening is staying safe and healthy.
0: Me too. And and hopefully we'll see you in person at CSC sometime soon.
1: Definitely. Fingers crossed. Exactly.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CSC podcast. I hope you'll join us again. And if you want to get updates and find out when new episodes are released, be sure to hit that subscribe button and follow us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Again, I'm Phil Haas, and we'll be back next month. Take care.